What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love everything there is to know about you, know who and more. Get off my world. It belongs to me. Get off my world, it belongs to me. I just do the best I can. Friends, listeners, you've been very patient, but it's true that our conversation about the Peter Capaldi era has spilled over into two episodes. So welcome back, please, to Get Off My World. We are your hosts, Pat. Calvin, Joshua, and returning again, the unaffiliated critic himself, Michael McDonough. Hello, everyone. And this is part two of our Peter Capaldi overview on Get Off My World. All right, and now special topics, Dalek number two, and we're going to throw it back to Michael for another topic to discuss. Okay, well, for me, the best two minutes of Twice Upon a Time were the last two minutes of the introduction of Jodie Whittaker. I am so excited to see Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor. I am so excited that we finally have a female Doctor. How does that change the Doctor, or does it change the Doctor? I could argue that we have had this dynamic, certainly in the new series and possibly for 50-some-odd years now, of these fairly gendered relationships between the Doctor and, up until now, his companions. Expect that to change when we have a female Doctor traveling with companions. Well, uh, I remember back, I don't know, this must have been about 10 or 12, 15, 20 years ago or something like that. I remember reading an article in Salon.com that talked about how sexist the Harry Potter books were, that um, Hermione was always a secondary character, that there weren't any villains that were women. This was before like Beatrix Lestrange and the others that were introduced in Umbridge, gee whiz. I think this was before book five. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so this was quite a while ago, what I'm saying. I don't remember who the author was. I don't remember exactly what their point was, but uh, I I do remember that it got me thinking. Like, I I didn't agree with the premise, but I was wondering why I didn't agree with the premise, because Hermione was actually a fairly solid character as far as as I was concerned. And I, I thought it probably went back to the idea that our ideas of heroism are essentially male, that uh, it seemed very natural to me that uh, Harry would be the, well, I mean, I guess the books are about him, and everyone else is going to be a secondary character, and so they might be more or less heroic, but the main purpose of the books is to uh, show a heroic story from a male point of view. And maybe that's what Doctor Who has been up to now. It's always been a male story, and everyone else your Jamies, your Harry Sullivans, your canines, your chameleons, whatever. There there was beta males that are going to uh, exist in relation to the Doctor. And now this entire thing is upended because we're going to have we're going to have a woman in the lead role. And even though Doctor Who shouldn't be about gender, as we talked about, I think, in the last round, in the really real world, 
it is. And so we're going to have to have these sort of uh, conversations about it. And that's just me noodling on Michael's initial point. I don't have anywhere to go with it. I just like this is where his question led me. My hope is, is that with a female doctor, you are going to have to keep things more gender neutral. Like if a female doctor has to have a romantic relationship, it's going to feel more sexist than if she's a male doctor. As in like, oh, you know, it's a woman doctor, so of course she's got to fall in love with somebody. So from a totally selfish attitude, a lot of things I don't like about the new series, I think they're going to have to back off of or it's going to move into really dangerous territory simply because she is the first now several doctors down the road it might be different but everything she does it's going to be read through the lens of it's a female there's so much less latitude for Mm -hmm. women heroes or or heroes of color or whatever because they always have to represent in some Mm -hmm. particular way so, so one of the things that got me thinking about this was looking back at really the entire new series we can leave the the classic series out for a moment and realizing how much of it is, it's set up with this dynamic that the Doctor's female companions are keeping in check some of what I think we could stereotypically call his male characteristics, his kind of his arrogance and his tendency towards violence and his tendency to control everything. Um, Donna has a line, I think, in her first episode where she says, find someone to travel with because you need someone to keep you in check. Yeah. I think that has been established as a gender dynamic, and that's what got me starting to think about, is that going to change now? Are we expecting a more stereotypically feminine approach to problem solving from the new Doctor? Or because she's still the Doctor, is she going to be just like every other Doctor has always been, and handling problems the same way? It's hard to even predict because the models aren't there, right? Like. You know, we're trying to look for analogs, but they're all male ones. So I'm thinking of uh, a doctor trying to keep a violent companion in check. Could be a second doctor and Jamie. Could be the third doctor and the brigadier. It could be the fourth doctor and Leela. Mm-hmm. Um, those were always either male-male or you know in the civilized slash barbarian way. It's they're not gendered in the way that you're describing. I mean, one of the things that's so exhilarating about the Jodie Whittaker era coming up is that we're going to see that happen in real time. We're going to see what things happen that we haven't ever seen before. I'm sure a lot of it's going to suck, but (laughs) uh, hopefully they'll get some things right, right? I think they're going to have to, and sometimes it'll be successful and sometimes it'll probably be really painful, they're going to have to have some commentary on it. And that's how I'm not sure how they're going to handle it. I mean, they avoided it in the end of Twice Upon a Time. I think they did it really well. The just simple, oh, brilliant, and not some sort of jokey line. I was terrified she was going to make some crack about, like, ooh, I've got boobs now, or something like that. (laughs) I thought we were pretty safe in that area. Well, I mean, maybe not literally the word boobs, but... Yeah, Stephen Moffat already made that joke in Curse of Fatal Death. Not that he is averse to repeating himself, but mm-hmm. yeah. But here, here is the trap that, unfortunately, they have to work around, is that, as you mentioned, all these other dynamics from past Doctors, and the fact is, the Doctor changes. And sometimes the Doctor approaches something in a violent way, sometimes he's just a passionate pacifist, and a lot of it 
it has nothing to do with gender, it has to do with different writers with different political beliefs writing them throughout 50 years of history. But now uh, that history of inconsistency is going to be scrutinized, I fear, in a different way, especially in this era of social media where, you know, everyone's going to have to have 16 different hot takes on everything that happens in this new series of Doctor Who within 30 seconds of it happening. And so I just hope we don't all just get caught up in an online flame war over this and just enjoy this sort of weird new era and the, the fact that you're going to have to just figure these things out as you go. And like Pat said, the margin of error for Jodie Whittaker is so narrow. Wonder Woman had to be a good movie. If it wasn't, it was going to get torn apart. It's the same problem facing this next coming series. And if it turns out to be terrible, and let's face it, with Chris Chibnall, there is that risk. I am optimistic, but that is a possibility. You're right, Josh. The the flame wars are going to be raging about how, oh, this new female doctor is terrible. But it'll come from every side. It'll be that she's not feminist enough, or she's it's terrible because mm-hmm. she's a woman, and she should get back in the kitchen. I mean, it'll be like every single variation on the political spectrum. And some of it will be people actually believing this stuff, and some of it will just be people seeing an opening to get clicks, because no one has mm-hmm. written a blog entry from this point of view. So it seems to me like they're probably trying to hedge their bets a little bit with Jodie Whittaker because I, I'm looking this up now to see who her companions mm-hmm. uh, have been cast with. I, I knew this, and then I, I but I had to refresh my memory. So uh, what we have is an older white man, the Chase host, Bradley Walsh, along with former Hollyoaks actors Tosin Cole and Mandeep Gill, a younger black man, and a woman of color who looks, uh, I don't know exactly, she might be Indian-English descent. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of these <laughs> names. I'm sure I'll hear them on, on media uh, fairly quickly. Uh, but this seems, broadly speaking, kind of like a, if I were to cast the new female doctor, I would maybe try to normalize the power structure between them in this sort of way, right? So we have an older kind of non-threatening but well-known white guy Mm -hmm. and a younger black guy and another woman who seems maybe younger of color as well. I don't know. There's not an alpha male thing there mm-hmm. even the older white guy like at least from the photo i'm looking at he's like he's your cheesy grandfather who's <laughs> smiling whatever so it's it seems to me that this could be more of a kind of democratic tardis and i hope it's not really i want the doctor to be authoritative in the way that the doctor has always been authoritative but uh, maybe they're trying to avoid this I, I really don't know how multiple companions like that are going to work in a new series era when everything is so compressed. There are rumors that this is going to be a no TARDIS season. Oh, it's, it's going to be up. like Pertwee's seasons. Okay. Um, and that, you know, that she gets shaken out of the TARDIS at the end of Twice Upon a Time, and that she spends, you know, at least like the first few episodes, not the first season, looking for her TARDIS or whatever. Then what we're looking at is an Earth-based series, which sounds dangerously close to me to Christian Mull doing Torchwood again. Oh, yeah. Oh, we don't, we don't <laughs> yeah. want that. No, no we don't want no. that. And again, these are just rumors. Nothing has been confirmed about that. But That makes an unpleasant amount of sense, though, considering what we saw at the end of uh, Twice Upon a Time. 
No, they've done this in the past. I mean, uh, the Pertwee seasons come in for a lot of stick, but but I like them quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole series of BBC books where he, he loses his memory and the TARDIS and is dropped off in the late 19th century early 20th century and spends a hundred years just waiting for his companions to pick him up again and I thought that was quite mm-hmm. cool but yeah I suppose that's probably not what they're going to do here not if they want to keep the same <laughs> companions right they're not going to do it over a hundred years um, yeah I, ma- I imagine a couple of these people or one or two are like strictly terrestrial people that she just kind of deals with you know kind of like the brigadier or something like they go off and do something and they come back to modern day earth and it's like oh it's this guy again hey but wouldn't it be cool if they just upended the new series structure in any sort of way whatsoever i mean it seems like it seems like they'll go either way because they've done something that some viewers may consider drastic like changing gender that they will dig in and go with its familiar new series stuff as much of a companion family dynamic and sort of retread the same ground to make uh, skeptical viewers comfortable but for those who are clamoring for something different, they have Jodie Whittaker. I'm still chewing over Michael's original question, though. It's like, what happens when you have a woman as the doctor? Because it's been a white male up to now, and so you have a lot of versatility with that. I mean, this is this is the problem, right? You can look at a white male as being a romantic lead. You can look at him as being a grandfather, like he was mm-hmm. in the very first thing, uh, in a vuncular figure, like he was with uh, Sylvester McCoy, a strange, unearthly figure, like early Tom Baker or whatever. Like, all of these things work with mm-hmm. the white male default, mm-hmm. but as soon as you mm-hmm. introduce a woman into that role or a person of color or whatever, then all of these things get upended in mm-hmm. like, oh, well, we're not used to seeing that. Or yeah. a, a woman couldn't react in that cold-blooded way like Tom did in Pyramids of Mars. You know, I'm just, just to pick a I random think, example. I think there's an opportunity yeah. here to play it like Matt Smith and Peter Davison, where we went with the world sees them as these young inexperienced looking people who are really these ancient aliens on the inside or the second doctor and the seventh doctor who seemed like goofballs and harmless but were really uh, it would kill you without a second thought you know mm-hmm. so i mean i think they could play on the viewers stereotypes of what it means that she on the outside looks like a 35 year old earth woman and if they did that effectively it could be really interesting when you think of it if any show could do it doctor oh, who could yeah. do it that's what makes it an interesting in-story question, if nothing else. Like, what has literally happened to this person? And how does it change her that she's suddenly a woman when she still is fundamentally the same character she's been all along? And I was talking about this with my wife, trying to think some of this through. And she said, well, she's the same person. She's the same character. She should play it just like the character has always been. She said if the Doctor suddenly regenerates into a black actor, which will happen eventually... That does not mean that that person suddenly knows what it's like to be black, right? right? Blackness is an experience and a set of experiences (laughs) and how you've been treated all your life. It's not that that person is suddenly knows what it's like to be black. And it's the same thing with the doctor regenerating into a woman. So I don't know. It's it's just an interesting question. I'm curious to see how they're going to do it. Right. The doctor has not been treated as a woman for 1,500 years. Right. And his biology or her biology is completely inessential to everything we've ever known about the doctor. And that would be the same whatever color skin he had, too. It's only how other people react to him. And and that's going to be a story-by-story thing. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I said react to her. Right. We have to start getting yeah, used yeah, to our pronouns. Right. <laughs> them? Do I? Yeah, I'm going to use them from now on, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you can go to any alien planet, and all of a sudden the Doctor is reacted to in whatever way that the story writer wants mm-hmm. to. But now, of course, as Michael, I think you and Nakia talked to in your Back to the Future episode of your podcast, mm-hmm. there aren't a lot of places that people usually go in time travel stories that are all that welcoming to people of color, and women face much of the same problem. Which is something I was pleased to see Bill bring up in this past season of Doctor Who, that yeah. she like, okay, yeah, sure, we can go back to the 1800s. Is that going to be okay for me? We got to be, it makes me a little nervous. This is also a question that will have multiple pins put into it, and I'm sure that we're going to return to it uh, frequently. All right, so for our fifth and final round, The Death Zone. It always ends in death with Doctor Who. (laughs) What can I tell you? As do all things. All things do, except Doctor Who, which keeps going on and on and on. So what we're going to do here, fellas is we're going to decide what is the best Peter Capaldi episode. Ever. Definitively. Definitively. There will be no arguments on the internet anymore. Nothing. (laughs) This is it. We're done after this. Yeah, well, the podcast is not done. I should, no, everyone calm down. No, it will be fine. We'll all be absorbed by little wood grubs. (laughs) Don't give it away, Calvin. (laughs) Uh, but there are too many to talk about all of them individually in this round. So each one of us, uh, Michael, Calvin, myself, and you, Josh, are, are we're going to nominate two that we think are in contention for mm-hmm. best Peter Capaldi stories. So, uh, Michael, as our guest, would you like to start us? First, I'd like to nominate a little appreciated story, The Eaters of Light, which to me, I just love that story. For one thing, I think it's one of the most successful versions of old Doctor Who that new Doctor Who has done. I think it feels very Seventh Doctor to me. The pacing is just different. It was written by a classic series writer, Rona Monroe. I just love that story. It just has a weird resonance for me that I think just really, really worked. And then my other nominee, I think, is more obvious, and that is Heaven Sent, which to me is just the masterpiece of the Capaldi era. Yeah. And if you will indulge me, I'm just going to read something. It'll be much more efficient. I, I did a list of the best Moffat episodes, and this is my little blurb on, on Heaven Sent. It is true that there's never been an episode of Doctor Who like this one, but it is also true that Heaven Sent may be the prototypical episode of Doctor Who. Just the Doctor running through a lot of corridors, fighting a monster with no weapons but his wits, and being forced to die and be reborn again over and over. This is Doctor Who stripped of everything but the essence of the Doctor himself, his indefatigable spirit, and exhaustible will in the face of overwhelming odds. Well, great. We're done. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. <laughs> no, we will soldier on like the Doctor, and we will argue in vain for our other episodes. <laughs> like Stephen Moffat at the end of The Doctor Falls, we've got more in us. Calvin? Well, I'm going to uh, go with Flatline, which was from season eight and had the um, boneless, the boneless, and uh, the tiny TARDIS. I name you the boneless. Also, I'm going to go with Oxygen from season ten, uh, partly because I honestly, genuinely think that's a world we're moving into where we're we're literally going to have to pay for our own air. 
they're going to find a way to monetize that, it's going to happen. And so the prophetic yeah. nature of that story. Yeah, the kind of uh, uh, capitalist inevitability thing, I guess. I don't know, yeah. Uh, well, for me, I'm going to nominate season eight. Mummy on the Orient Express, uh, one that I think most people kind of went like, yeah, at the time, but in retrospect, I think was one of the best ones, if not the best, of season eight. It had a lot going on character-wise and had a good, solid, forward-propelled plot. It is a train in space. Uh, I have more to say about it, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll save that for later in the discussion. And then... One that we've talked about at at some length on this podcast, Extremis, from the middle of season 10, the first of the three-part story with the monks, Extremis Pyramid at the End of the World and The Lie of the Land. And even though the second and third parts fell off a bit from the the high point of Extremis, but I um, I don't know. (laughs) You fell off as well. I fell off too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I am going to nominate Listen from Series 8. Listen! (laughs) I just love that episode. Pretty much love everything that everyone seems to hate about it that I've read online. I love the open-ended ambiguity of it. Part of the reason I like that episode so much is that it made me like something that I usually, under other circumstances wouldn't like and that was this sentimental seeing the doctor as a child at the end and Clara comforting him and despite my better judgment (laughs) I still went along with it that's how well crafted that episode is I will also nominate the um, final two-parter of season 10 World Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls you've got two masters and the Mondas Cyberman and uh, the Doctor being mortally wounded even though he doesn't regenerate at the end. Really what should have been, as we discussed earlier, the end of the 12th Doctor and it has this laundry list of items that really shouldn't work. But just on the Doctor's speech to the Master alone, I think makes this a a worthy addition to the list. Gentlemen, now we fight. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to arm wrestle? Um... Well, my problem is I actually love almost every episode you guys mentioned, with the possible exception of Mummy, which is not a personal favorite of mine. But that's splitting hairs at this point. Should we just kick it off right now? You son of a bitch. (laughs) Mummy Mummy of the Orient Express is hurt by having one of the goofier titles of the Capaldi era. What what world have we slipped into in which Kelvin objects to goofiness? No, I'm all about There's a line being drawn (laughs) on goofy. I think it it was a very clever episode, and I liked it. It's just, you know, it's got that weird thing of, like, oh, it's the far future sometime, but we're going to make everything look like the 1920s for no reason. And it has a title that kind of makes you roll your eyes a little bit. But it's a good story, I think. Well, Kelvin, as usual, I can't argue with you because <laughs> yeah. you are correct in all things uh, <laughs> uh, I just have a different emotional quotient yeah. to, to okay. what it is so uh, for me at this point in season 8 is where it really started to hit on all cylinders yes. for me. it was very spiky for me up to that point as much as in retrospect I appreciate the alien doctor and Clara's relationship well it worked better looking back on it 
than it did at the time. So I didn't appreciate Into the Dalek really all that much. And Listen was its own thing so mm-hmm. much that by the time we got here, I was like, ah, this is a, a quality Doctor Who story. Uh, it's not really breaking any new ground, but it's got great design. It's got a simple, straightforward, railroady concept. Uh, it has Jenna Coleman in clearly her most beautiful dress. Mm-hmm. And that can I just be male there for a <laughs> yeah. second? It just, that is a really good argument. She never looked better than in that great dress. She's really strange. I don't think there's an outfit you can put her in that she wouldn't look great in. Oh, that is true. And here it was the tops. But it also seemed to me to really be a part of season eight. Like we really saw the relationship between the two of them gel and the joke that I said earlier where he's like, oh, I just let them all die. And she's like, really, you did? And no, and no, I didn't. You know, that that seemed to kind of work in the context of this. Like we're all going forward for once. Um, having said all this, I recognize that this is probably more of a personal favorite to me. I don't know if the train is going to run to the end of this segment, if it's really <laughs> going to be the, the, the greatest of all Capaldi episodes. I agree with everything you just said, and I, especially the stuff, the character stuff between Clara and the 12th Doctor, I think that's one of the key elements for the arc that happened over that season. I think for me, what makes it a little weaker is just that I don't think the A storyline is as strong as a lot of other. It's pretty by the book, out of the drawer of ideas. It demotes it to a, a B level episode for me. Reluctantly, I confess, I think you're probably right, and we got to keep chug, chug, chugging along. <laughs> I see what you did there. I choo, choo, choose you. Josh. So the first episode out of the death zone would be Mummy. So we're down to seven. All right. It's going to take a while. (laughs) Well, we're picking up speed, I think. Picking up speed. Well, I'm going to make the case to boot out one of Calvin's. (laughs) Yeah, why not? Get the knives out. (sighs) I really like Oxygen, but I don't think it's going to make the cut. It was like one of the more genuinely just straight-up scary stories i think in the capaldi era with the there's no air (laughs) and things happen to bill that are really extreme and things happen to the doctor that are really extreme i think you're right it had different stakes than what we're used to seeing in doctor who i thought its political message was awesome charging for air yeah but instead of letting that be its political message it got out a sledgehammer at the end and it had the convenient like we'll find another alternative to capitalism that we won't mention here (laughs) so we're gonna take this strong political stance for that there's something out there yeah that that, that was just you know as an american that statement was just really startling to hear like they just flat out just say capitalism is bad well that's a discussion for another day that's 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 an endless discussion yeah we're trying to keep this moving now Uh, Keep it moving. I'm also just trying to knock some episodes off here really quick, Calvin. Like your episode, Josh. Take one. I'll surrender two of them. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about Listen, which I don't remember really all that well. All right, really hard. I'm gonna I'm gonna back you up on that one, Josh. Listen's uh, from what I can just see in the in the ether of the internet is like the the high water mark of the Twelfth Doctor era. Yeah, why he's barely in it, right? No, he's in it a lot. It's all here is where I think you start to see the Twelfth Doctor his vulnerability. He's so manic in the TARDIS that he's alone possibly conjuring up bad guys to fight. I love the willingness to be this ambiguous throughout it. I really love his, really, I think, first interaction with children uh, when Capaldi comes and gives the speech to the little boy who's scared in bed when the 
the strange creature comes out under the bed sheets, or maybe it wasn't there, maybe it was another kid, we don't know. And so I, I just thought it was really well done, and it stands up to multiple viewings. Some of those like trick ones, you go back, and then it's like, uh, it couldn't have worked out that way, or it's clearly a monster, it's clearly not. This one really holds up. I have not done a recent reviewing, so I can't argue the fine individual scenes or dialogue in it, but I, I loved it a lot. Does it retroactively justify that sort of character arc for Capaldi? I mean, it's fairly early in season eight, right? So does it, when we were talking about his character arc earlier, does it define it? Does it help to clarify it? I would argue that it definitely does. It almost defines the 12th Doctor's arc and really goes to the the DNA of the entire show. One of my arguments is that it comes up again in the last episode, is this, this idea of the Doctor dealing with fear, Right? The first Doctor says, I was afraid. I don't admit that very often. And so you have this character who spends all of his time running. The question of what he's running from, I think, is important. And it's a real contribution to the thematic heart of the show. I like the idea that he, the Doctor does act out of fear and that he runs around the universe pulling out the mysterious thing under the bed that we're all afraid of. And I think, listen, that's what listen is about. I think it stays on the table, damn it. Yeah, I, I can't quite knock out uh, Listen just yet. I will knock out Extremists, though. What? <laughs> Kelvin, you backstabbing son of a bitch. <laughs> Extremists was, you know, great, scary setup, like what the hell's going on type situation. And then the continuing storyline just lands in, I think, a big wet mess. <laughs> Watching that three-part story reminded me of the old joke about the guy who falls out of a 10-story building. And when he passes the fifth floor, you hear him say, so far, so good. <laughs> That's what watching that three-part story was like. Yeah, it, it ends it's, up in a bloody mess on the sidewalk. It's so frustrating because it, it, it is such a great start. And then I just don't think they knew what the heck to do with it. Well, to be fair, to judge Doctor Who from where it ends up. Is like judging any of us in our lives from where we end up. There were times in our lives that we loved and that were great. And now look at us. So that's sort of how I view Doctor Who. Like, this part was great in isolation. And we just try to draw a veil over where it went from there. But in addition to that, I thought Extremis was an extremely well-done script, even though it indulged a lot of serious goofy Stephen Moffat-isms mm-hmm. like the Pope being around. Yeah. It's like, oh, let's let's have the Pope. The Pope uh, was just there for a wacky joke. But, yeah. you know... Funny joke. It, it was, was a funny, funny joke. I was there. I was totally on board with the Pope. So Why is the Pope in my bed? I, I dug the Pope. Also, I, I liked the fundamental idea of it, which is that if you make a simulation of the Doctor that is close enough, it's gonna... You up. Yeah. It's going to be like, oh, yeah. it's, it's a problem, you know, and so even though the doctor's the like, doc, oh. the doctor is so smart that even as a simulation, he will beat you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, that was amazing. And yeah. I love that. We've talked about this time and time again on the podcast. The idea of the doctor is not just a single biological individual, which itself is changeable, but that it can be taught. It can be learned, it can be built and simulated, and all of a sudden you've got like a good thing, like a like a hero for good that you didn't expect to happen, and that's what happens in extremists, and that's where it bubbles up. Having said that, Kelvin, I, I think all of those things are great about extremists, but 
you're right. <laughs> you're right. It doesn't really lead anywhere. I think that it is one of the best Capaldi episodes. I would agree. Uh, but it can't be the, the best. best. If it were a standalone, I think it would be in contention. Yeah. yeah. I think that's true of most two-part or multi-part Doctor Who stories in the new series. They haven't been very good at the multi-part thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do think the Doctor Falls is better than The World Enough in Time. I can't see a two-parter really winning this. I know, I'm, I'm attacking my own episode. You're self-destructing right am, now. But, oh, no. Uh, uh, That's but, a really good story. It is a really good story, and I think it's one of the best two-part stories of New Who, and definitely one of the best season finale. Finales are, are, are have always been a weak part of the of new Capaldi? series. Of Capaldi? There's only three, so... The first one we will no, pass over. Uh, we don't want to see Michael Stroke out. We don't even have to review them. It yeah. is definitely the best, <laughs> hands down. And it, it has the master shooting himself in the back. And it <laughs> <laughs> That was kind of incredible, actually. Yeah. I definitely one of the best episodes. Uh, but I can't say that I would vote for it as the greatest. What do you think, Michael? I agree it's probably not going to win. I do think it's, a, it's the rare two-parter where both parts work together well. I think it's Moffat being clever, but the cleverness serves a purpose. I really like the ship with the time running differently at both ends. I think it's a clever idea. I think it works as a metaphor for how the Doctor and the Companions live their lives. There's a lot of stuff in that story I like. For me, it's not a personal favorite, and this may be blasphemous. I never want to see the Cybermen again. <sighs> Here, here's a whole other topic to have sometime. I think there is no classic monster in more need of a serious makeover than the Cybermen. Mm -hmm. They keep trying to tweak them, and they just don't work. They're kind of boring. I, I think we've kind of seen about as much Cybermen as we can cyber-see mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, for a while. Well, like, literally, last episode we recorded, we talked about the audio drama Spare Parts. Yeah, I listened to that. When I first heard that a few years ago, I was my reaction was, they should never do another Cybermen story. This is the ultimate one. This is There's nowhere to go after this. And the most effective Cybermen portions of that story are the ones that echo back to spare parts. Right. The, the Cybermen pushing the button that says pain, pain, over and over again. That's very much the yeah. spirit of spare parts there. I have a little problem with Bill's exit in The Doctor Falls. It's Me a little too, too convenient. That's the weakest part. You definitely have to paper over that um, with a lot of goodwill from the best parts of <laughs> the preceding two episodes. Um, but that alone, because Bill was such a strong character, it is a pretty big stumbling block for that one as the greatest of his episodes. It's funny. Doctor Who can do tragedy, uh, but only with the Doctor, right? It can't mm -hmm. do it with the supporting characters. Uh, it just only seems done it a handful of times. It just seems mean, when it happens yeah, to a companion. You expect it from the doctor. Of course yeah. it's going to die. Yeah. I, I'd argue Russell T. Davies was better at it, actually, than, than Moffat is in well, making us actually feel well, Donna's the, exit the poignancy was, of those exits. Yeah, Donna's was far more poignant than Bill's, or, Cla or certainly Clara's. I, I, I seem to be the only one in the universe that feels this way. I always thought like what happened to Donna wasn't poignant. I thought it was just mean. I thought it was just flat-out sadistic. It's a difference in emphasis, right? Yeah. Or em emotional emphasis. It was mean and it was tragic, but you had to decide. Either you want to have something tragic happen to your character, then do it. Mm. Don't get all the emotional energy out of it and then reverse it like uh, Moffat does. Which Moffat does all the time. Davies had the balls to just go, yep, 
and that's how I'm leaving her. I had to roll my eyes at the Rose thing, well, partly because, kind of like Michael here, in the sense that like a, a version of a character is not the same as a character mm-hmm. for me. So right. like the fake David Tennant, and that's uh, uh, duplicated by the fact that it's an alternate world story, which I can never take seriously at all. It's like, oh, well, it's an alternate worlds thing. That's just somebody saying, what if? That doesn't matter anything for me in terms of the, the logic of the story. So, But so, if, they, if they had never brought Rose back, if they had just left her where she was on Doomsday, that, that would have been a very poignant exit. The problem is, and Moff, this is what Moffat does all the time, you can't resist bringing them back. Mm-hmm. You know, Rory died a hundred times, and Clara died a hundred times, and... Bill was turned into a Cyberman and brought back... I mean, pretty much every companion. I mean, Nardal was originally killed, and they brought him back. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> they, Forgot Nardal Nardal was died. a head. Yeah. Yeah. Nardal was literally a head. He, he got a head in life, though. He was, like, at the... Uh, okay, never mind. Yeah. You can cut Get that. Some <laughs> yeah. And apparently glass nipples, if you believe uh, Twice Upon a Time. And invisible, <laughs> invisible hair. Invisible hair, Like yeah. Calvin. All right, so how how many episodes are we down to, guys? Okay, I will throw Eaters of Light on the trash heap. Okay. I I think it's a great episode. I think it's a a good, solid episode. I don't think it's in contention for for best of all time. That's kind of it. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's... I I don't know if there's anything super-duper great about it. I mean, it's it's just... Oh, I think it's super-duper great. Yeah. I really can't criticize it in any particular way, but it, it just didn't, like... Hit, hit a button of mine. Exactly. I don't know. Calvin, it's so good. It's, it's a very good episode. I didn't say I didn't say it sucked for Christ's sakes. <laughs> Things are getting ugly here in the dead. I tried to drag you on to the positive no. side of the ledger. Uh, uh, I take it. Of all the Doctor Who fans I know who are not reflexively anti Moffat, anti Twelfth Doctor era, they they almost all of them have picked Eaters of Light as like one mm-hmm. of their favorite things. That era did. If Eaters of Light had been the baseline mm-hmm. level of what Capaldi's stuff was like, we would be considering this the best Doctor Who ever. Mm-hmm. Like that. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I agree with you that it it's not like innovative or it doesn't break new ground. It doesn't like tell you a whole lot more about the Doctor Who universe, yeah. but it's uh, it's an extremely well done, well told, well acted, well directed story that could only take well not only take place but you know takes place in the Doctor Who universe and uses that extremely well without among other things, raising more questions than it answers. Yeah, and and I, entirely selfish subjective thing here. Uh, I don't know about other parts of the country, but Minneapolis is currently inundated with crows. <laughs> we have crows all over the damn place. They're noisy. They crap on everything. I'm anti-crow right now. <laughs> Minneapolis is a huge wintering area for crows, and we we have it's called the mega murder. We have, we have so many crows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kelvin is actually covered in crows right now. Uh, our listeners can't see it. Fortunately, yeah, it's it's Nardal hair crows. But uh, it, it it might be affecting his attitude about that episode. <laughs> I would think you would like it more because it is the reverse kill the moon. Yeah, right where the humans take the choice out of the doctor's hand. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's good. That's good. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Anything okay, that can be described as a reverse kill the moon, good thing. <laughs> no, we're going to take it off the table. That is makes it down to uh, what? Um, uh, Heaven sent. We haven't talked about flatline. We haven't talked about flatline. Flatline yet. and listen is what we're down to, right? Sure. <laughs> I think that's about where we are. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about flatline. Okay. I name you the boneless, Calvin. No, it wouldn't like be that. the first time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Don't talk about our honeymoon. <laughs> TMI. Oh, boy. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, you, you, you took that in a way I wasn't really intending, but okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, what about the bonus? Oh, no, no. <laughs> I've said what I had to say. <laughs> Like Eaters of Light, this is a fantastic Doctor Who story that uses all the things that are just sort of uniquely Doctor Who, and it does it really nonchalantly. Like, yeah, flat things come to life and somehow make it into a really exciting story. This is top tier. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the best set in the modern day stories I think New Who has ever done. And it is the most interesting use of the Clara as the Doctor idea mm-hmm. that they were kicking around um, for a season and a half. Like, what I really wanted to see from Doctor Who is, like, stuff I haven't seen before, and I've, I've certainly never seen the TARDIS shrink down before. Yeah. We have seen it in multiple episodes shrink down, but not <laughs> Legopolis. Uh, doesn't it shrink down in... Yeah, Planet oh, it does. Planet yeah. of Giants. Planet, yeah. uh, Here it matters. It has a it's narrative effect to... Just the whole thing of, like, a doctor trying to move the TARDIS around with his hand. Like, <laughs> it was kind of astounding. No, me. it's wonderful. It's, it's funny. It makes sense in terms of the relative dislocation mm-hmm. that it can do. But it also works into what you just talked about, where the, Clara has to be the doctor. Mm-hmm. and uh, There's a reason for it in this yeah. story, yes. It's solid. Best? No. No. Are we undervaluing it, though? The other two, Listen and Heaven Sent, are both outliers. They're both Doctor Who doing something very different than what Doctor Who always does. Flatline, for me, is the best pure Doctor Who episode of the Capaldi era. Hmm. Well, and this was sort of my point with with The Mummy, uh, mm-hmm. Mummy on the Orient Express is that I love Heaven Sent and I do like Listen. I was giving a little bit of stick about yes. that, but but they are unusual for Doctor. And so there is the temptation to value the things that take the things that we know and and say that these unusual versions of them are better. It's like a City of Death in the original mm-hmm. series. Well, it's, it's like Blink too. We, that everybody loves Blink so much, yeah, which is a very non Doctor Who kind of story. Right. And so it always sticks in my craw a little bit, like, oh, or these ones that everyone loves, that's not what Doctor Who is. Mm-hmm. That's not really. So having said that, the structure of the show allows for those outliers, and it, it, you know, it makes them possible. And uh, I don't think we should say, just because they're unusual, we shouldn't value them. But you do have almost two categories here, though. I think you would put things like Flatline back on the table and Eaters of Light for, like, mm-hmm. How can you elevate a really practical, traditional Doctor Who story and make it something new and fresh? They used to call it rad and trad back mm-hmm. in the novels <laughs> yeah. days. Yeah. I think that's a good description. There's a fundamental divide in yeah. those stories. Yeah. And those are high-level trad stories, whereas mm-hmm. Listen and Heaven Sent are yeah. totally rad. Totally man. rad. <laughs> I think uh, of the stories discussed, the only one I cannot think of anything really wrong with at all is Heaven Sent. I cannot find a flaw in that one particular story. Well, it's a one-hander, right? It's just Capaldi mm-hmm. and, yeah. and a solid script. So, and, and this is what makes it the winner for me, too, is that element, is that, because looking at trying to figure out the best Capaldi episode, if you put almost any other Doctor, certainly any new series Doctor, in this story, I don't think it's as good. That's why, for me, it's the best episode he has done. Imagine David Tennant running around talking to himself for... <laughs> 
power. Oh. I, I couldn't picture that. That's a, that's, that's a hideous idea. And I, I, I couldn't really picture Matt Smith doing it either. The tragic depth is not there with those two. Yeah. Couldn't picture Christopher Eccleston doing it. Maybe. If he'd had a little more time a couple seasons in. Maybe. Yeah. It'd be um, awfully different, though. It's speculative. So between Listen and Heaven Sent. Boy. I agree with the Heaven Sent argument in that it is pure 12th Doctor Peter Capaldi. You know, Listen, I would say, is a little bogged down by the story arc of the season. Mm-hmm. You yeah. still have to deal with Danny The Pink. Danny Pink stuff. It introduces yeah. a mystery about Danny Pink that is never solved, which is one of Moffat's favorite things to do, is to leave just all these unanswered questions. Uh, that's um, a good point. That is a weakness of that episode. Uh, you know, it seems, it seems like a great it's like, well, intriguing well, were, mystery, and it's just an utter red herring. Yeah, they were going to build up all this stuff about Danny Pink, and it went... Who's, who's Orson Pink? Literally nowhere. Yeah. And then what happened to Orson Pink? Like, Orson <laughs> Pink is supposed to be this hugely historically important figure, but if Danny's gone, where where's yeah. Orson then? Guys, listen, sucks. <laughs> No, that's not listening. See, the, I think I'm, I'm going to get more that's in the, years to come out of listen than I'm going to get out of heaven sent. Because okay. I do think you talked about the ambiguity in listen, yeah. and I think it does. It is going to reward multiple rewatches in a way that heaven sent is not going to do. So I'm I'm on the fence here. I'm going to disagree with you there, Mike. I think the ambiguity in listen is probably an artifact of of Stephen Moffat being a little bit unclear about what he wanted to do, and I think the no, I think the, it's intentional ambiguity. Yeah, uh, but it's ambiguity that will never be resolved in mm-hmm. any way. So, uh, for me, I'm starting to feel like we should decide the best rad and the best trad, and I think that Heaven Sent would be my vote for best rad. <laughs> I have to go with Heaven Sent. Heaven Sent was just probably the most excited by a, a Doctor Who story I've been in years, quite frankly. I'm on the fence, but I'm going to go with Heaven Sent. The only thing I can find to pick on, listen for, is the embedded yeah. Season 8 storylines that you have to work around. But it's very, very close. And it kind of depends on, on my mood which one I would, yeah. I would say is better. Well, such is the way of the death zone. It makes you feel like a rat. Michael? <laughs> let's let's make it unanimous. It was my nominee, so I'm, I'm not going to back off it now. Heaven Sent is the Heaven best episode sent. of okay. the Valley era. The world has been rocked by this decision. <laughs> let's do trad, you guys. Okay. This is a little trickier. This I'm is gonna, trickier. I'm going to go for Eaters of Light over Flatline for best trad, <gasps> mainly because Ooh. the Doctor is the focus. Okay. Oh, it's such different moods. This, this is a tougher, oh, boy. tougher decision in some ways. It's tougher, but I'm Flatline still, still going to go with so Flatline. Much fun. I feel like a scumbag for saying no to Eaters of Light. but It's a subjective thing in that I think if you like Clara more, you might go with Flatline. That. If that were Sarah Jane in Flatline, I'd probably be all over it. I've just never warmed to her as a character. I definitely think it's one of her the better Clara, episodes. The Clara problem is, is a thing. Uh, but yeah. uh, I will take the episode with Bill and Nardle in it over a Clara episode. Uh, you guys, I'm going to reinsert my mummy on the Orient Express <laughs> yeah. here. That's yeah. my vote. Yeah, I'm going to call you boneless. Well, well it, 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 such is the nature of a mummy. It just doesn't stay down. It keeps, it's it keeps coming back up. and Relentless. Oh, no, someone's brewing up some more Tana leaves. Here comes the mummy again. Stop. I stop. think that's a great episode, but it is essentially 50 minutes of what is a brilliant three-minute exchange in Pyramid of Mars, and I don't know that it justifies an entire full episode. 
Well, we don't need to relitigate it, Josh. <laughs> we just need to make a vote. <laughs> and I'm voting uh, for the goddamn <laughs> Mummy on the Orient Express. <laughs> I nominated Eaters of Light. I am switching my vote and voting flat behind. Oh! oh. Kelvin wins. Oh, God. Two to one to one. The trad death zone. That doesn't happen often. This has been bloody and brutal. Oh, God. Friendships have been destroyed. Alliances have been built. This is epic. Podcasts have been recorded. <laughs> it's like a huge game of Civilization V. <laughs> And that's our podcast. Thank you guys for listening twice in both parts. Thank you so much. Uh, and we'd like to thank Michael for being here for both halves. Uh, Michael, you have a podcast. I do. My wife and I just launched a new podcast called The Unenthusiastic Critic, in which she sits down to watch movies that nearly everyone else on the planet has already seen. Excellent. That sounds great. And we are going to be back soon and regularly um, with more Doctor Who goodness. And we're going to be focusing a little more on the classic series and audios and books and all the other obscure nerdy corners of the Doctor Who universe while we wait for uh, Jodie Whittaker to be back. Uh, Until then, I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying, Get off my world! Friends, listeners, <laughs> Romans, countrymen, lend me your bones. All right, you're boneless. I forgot. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, did you? You've probably Which written about it. Did you like uh, the Last Jedi, or do you not? Care I actually about Star didn't. Wars? I didn't write about it, but I, I did like it. Okay. The backlash to me is mystifying. That people are so angry about that film. I, I don't get it. I understand why they're angry. I don't agree with it. Part of the reason I liked it is why I understand why they're angry. It just seems like every moment he could poke the most conservative Star Wars fans with a sharp stick, he did it. You know, so because the, the entire time I was watching it, my jaw was in my lap. I was just like, I can't believe he's doing this. He's upturning everything. I guess I guess I liked the choices. I did too. I did too. I'm saying I, I was just amazed that someone did that. The right democratization the of the force, which I think is something people yeah. are having trouble with—the idea that anybody can be force. Oh, are we in deep in Last Jedi? So, yeah, I had to ask you about Last Jedi. Sorry, we won't get to we won't down that route. This is a I, I like podcast. it. We we could record a uh, an alternate dimension thing about could. it right now. Uh, <laughs> let's finish this and see how late it gets. And, and Luke was all. Always a whiny little bitch, so I don't know why that... No, I mean, I think it's totally within character, but uh, again, you have to understand certain Star Wars fans who've created their own version of Luke post these movies. And so no, that I do. Was I, I have said several times, I don't think there is any fandom in the universe, and I include Doctor Who, that is now capable of taking so little pleasure from the thing that they love. <laughs> than Star Wars fans? Yeah. yeah. They're not going to like anything. I have to agree with that. I can't go down this road. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We gotta, we gotta it's get into the dead zone. It'll be 20 before we yeah. come out the other side, guys. <laughs> we're just talking. We're not recording, are we? Yeah. Oh, you of always course record we're recording. Every, everything is recorded. I need to use it. <laughs> we could totally do an alternate thing. We did a Rogue One Oh, we. Sh- I think we certainly You've should. seen Last Jedi. Yes, I've seen Last Jedi. The whole discussion we did with Kesson about which 
which preferred was Star Trek or Star mm-hmm. Wars. Mm-hmm. Franchise was better, yeah. Josh is the only one who stuck with Doctor Who. <laughs> 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 Chris was abandoned him like a broken down car on the side know. of the highway. I, I, guys, felt, I felt bad about guys, it, but I It was really a horrible... It, 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 it was a discussion topic that would never make anyone happy. Yeah. Uh, Shouldn't there's those like the topics in a relationship that you just don't start. <laughs> Cause you know where it's gonna go. It's like I saw a combination of like disgust but pleasure is like now I can just kind of say the hell with you all <laughs> I'm a liberal Democrat. What can I say? Star Trek points toward a better future. That's it. Just I, Doctor Who doesn't. It's constant struggle.